0: Well, I want to welcome you guys online, and those of you who are here as we now move into the sermon time of us corporately meeting together, when we worship, um, you know what, I am just so blessed with this, just the concept of worship, because worship truly, in what God has laid out for us, what worship is, it helps us connect with him as we're declaring truth, as we demonstrate to him this love that we have, and therefore as he stirs that up, because that's what worship is about. It is exalting God in his glory, in his majesty for who he is. I love worship. I truly love worship. Uh, And Revelation just simply gives us a hint of what lies ahead, church. And if you've not read through Revelation, at least for the first couple of chapters, read through it again and allow God to re-envision you for worship. Amen? Um, I'm going to go ahead, uh, and as we move now into the sermon portion of our service, I want us to just pray. Let's agree together. I believe God has something to speak to each of your hearts in his word, as we are going through this series, Inevitable Triumph, we're looking at, there's just, there's five of them, at least that's all the Lord's shown me, right? There's five of them. We're going to look at the life of David, and the last week we looked at the prophecies and how God is beginning to orchestrate and bring them to pass. Today, we're going to be looking at a little bit of a different angle, but church All of these things just it reveals to us as we look at David's life the nature of who God is because he has not changed and he has called his bride, his church, to an inevitable triumph, a triumphal procession, as we saw in first, excuse me, Second Corinthians 2. And sometimes we step back and we wonder, you know, how triumphant is this procession right now in my life? And I want you to know. It is very triumphant. We're going to look at that today. Amen. So, Father, we ask you right now, as your spirit would teach us, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, give us the ability to see and hear what you were trying to speak to our hearts corporately. But, Father, I pray individually, don't let us leave here unchanged by being in the presence of your presence and hearing your word. Please, Spirit of God. Do something amazing in us as we listen here in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read only one verse from that in just a moment. I'm going to read one more verse in chapter 16, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in chapter 18. I hope that didn't confuse you. I have been married since 1984. You do the math. I can remember falling in love with this young lady and... I was so in love when I was taking her back to campus because I lived, and her well, her grandmother lived only 30 minutes, just around the corner from me. Go figure that, right? She was born and raised in South Florida, but her grandmother was just around the corner, three miles from me, like. And I remember taking her back home to the University of Delaware, and the University of Delaware, when you're on 995, you have that one exit to get to the university because if you don't, then you end up going into Maryland and you end up paying the toll. So I ended up so unwrapped, so captivated in my conversation with her, I ended up paying the toll, right? (laughs) You you understand what I'm saying? Um, I was just head over heels. And I just remember thinking, Lord, I've got to marry this girl one day. And um, so when we got married, after knowing each other for a little over two years, in 1984, our first year was nothing short of It was hard. We began asking ourselves the question, did we make the right decision in even getting married? And I can remember when we we were talking about our car and the insurance coverage and all of that, my wife looked at me and she said, so are are you going to get AAA for us? And no offense to AAA, all right? I said, no. She said, she was horrified. But, and I'm thinking, wh- why would we get triple A? See, we have that in our insurance. We have two toes, blah, blah, blah. And she said, my, my dad, right, my dad always had triple A. So it's like, come on, you're, you're my husband. Get triple A, right? <laughs> we had to work through this. Well, your experience was a whole lot different than mine. <laughs> And moving forward, much of it will be, right? I realized that my wife and I were polar opposites. I mean, I kind of knew this before we got married. But when you're in the thick of life, I realized how very emotional she was. My wife is an emotional woman. I grew up with five boys, excuse me, yeah, well, four brothers, and a sister who is very much a tomboy, at least growing up, understand and she put me on my place. She's eight years older than me. She can't beat me up now. But back then, I would never give her the chance. And so she kept me in line, right? And when we were upset with one another, right, we fought. When we when we got into arguments, it was knock down, drag out, let's go outside. We're going to argue. And it was, but as soon as we were done, okay, we're good. We're arms around each other. We're best buds. And, my wife was nothing like this. <laughs> there was a tendency to hold grudges, okay? But she has learned since no silent treatment, that's not fair, but I was just thought who is this woman I've married? You know, I fought so differently growing up. And I can I can also remember when we were Doing Going to a church, I went to a very traditional church because that's what I grew up with. Not necessarily that I fit in, but there was an opportunity for me to minister there. So, wife, you're to come along with me, right? Well, it was just really hard for her. And we had to work through this. Now, we eventually were able to work things out. But can I just say it wasn't just the first year, all right? It wasn't just the first year. The, the, who, could you just, raise, are you married? Could you just raise your hand if you're married and, and you, you or have been married? And you know what? Marriage is hard. And there are times in which as you go through life and you butt heads, that happens, okay? Now, Disney doesn't show that, you know, fairy tale part, happily ever after, and and I don't in any way want to spoil your dreams of one day being married, but let's realize that life consists of problems. Even though our desire is, I want to marry this woman. I want to raise children, and she wanted eight. And I'm like, okay. I, there was I had there were six in our family. We ended up with five. We're grateful for this, but as we go through life church, it's hard. And we were, I remember laying in bed some nights just thinking, okay, I'm not going to go to bed angry. God says, don't do that. But Lord, I got a lot of questions, a lot of questions. And I. there were times, at least in the very beginning of our marriage, I wondered, did we make a mistake? Because this is a whole lot harder than I anticipated, even as in love as I was with my wife, and I am to this day. You know what, church? As you go through your relationship with Jesus Christ, As you answered that invitation to step into that relationship, he is, as we saying, our first love. But I tell you what, when God has you enter into a covenant relationship with him, that means that he has a purpose on your life. Not only does God have a purpose on your life individually, but corporately as his bride, as his church, we have a purpose. And we looked at that last week. But there are times in which you go through things that will test that resolve, that will test that truth, that belief that God is really for me and that all things inevitably will end up in triumph. I want you to, we're going to look at the life of David. And we're going to look at some hard things that he went through, even though the call of God to become king was on his life. And he knew it, Saul knew it. Jonathan, the the crown prince knew it. But there's some questions. If I were in David's sandals, I I would have have had a lot of questions. We're going to look at some things this morning. So just kind of buckle your seat as we go through. We're going to go through a a number of different things that I need us to see because I need you to be pressed up to that point where you can relate with David and say, man, he had it hard. But yet. There's a but in there that we're going to be looking at that we need to embrace because in view of how hard it is, there is a truth that does not change. God had not abandoned him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, I read this this past Wednesday and this past Sunday, but it says, Samuel speaking to King Saul, but now your kingdom, Saul, king, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. In essence, Samuel is saying to Saul, Done deal. You're on the way out, and another king is on the way in. Now, the way out took many years, by the way. It didn't happen overnight, so you know. But God had appointed already, done. Saul, I've got another replacement. How would you feel about that? Wow. See, Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. And God's choice was now about to become thrust into center stage. As we now turn the page or pages to chapter 16, and again, we looked at this, actually all of 16, we looked at this past Wednesday. We know that Samuel has gone to Bethlehem. He is there specifically to anoint the next king. Now, please understand, God does the appointing. Man does at least the outward anointing. Spiritually, there's an anointing. So there is both there that we're going to see, but man does the coronation. That's the ceremony. But the coronation means nothing without the anointing. And that's what's happening right now. Years before, David steps into kingship. And all seven of his brothers are paraded before him. And Samuel and Jesse are dialoguing. And I would suggest that that's what they're doing, seeing that they're the only ones who are talking to each other and that as... Samuel is saying to Jesse and not his brothers, nope, he's not chosen, he's not chosen, he's not chosen, ah, but he is chosen, okay? That's not what Samuel's doing, I believe. That would would be rather crushing to his brothers, no. You know what? Jesse, these are not the one. And then David comes before him. Then the Lord said, verse 12, rise and anoint him, he is the one. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. In the presence his brothers did see this. There's witnesses. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, we looked at the nuance of that wording, the Lord sending an evil spirit, and what does that even mean? Even as Satan came before God in Job 1, just give me this opportunity, right, to be able to go inside this protective hedge that you have around your servant Job, and you let me at him. You let me at his family, and we'll see if he's as righteous and blameless as you say. And so God permitted him. Though in chapter 42 it actually or the last chapter it actually says that God was the one who sent these tragedies. So it's a, it's, it's a different perspective, but understand Satan did it, God permitted it. same as we see here. Regardless, God has been God has appointed David and now the an evil spirit comes upon Saul and a remedy is sought for. This is review from this past Wednesday. And an attendant said, wow, you know what? I know a guy. I know a guy. Plays the harp great. Saul is looking for one particular skill set, playing the harp. And yet this attendant, if you read it, he lists seven. He's a warrior. I'm going to guess he's at least 20 at this point then. He is a good-looking guy. And the Lord is not because he's good looking. and the Lord is with him, ladies, just we see just because you see a good looking guy, well, the Lord must be with. Okay, just feet on the ground, right? And and so David, the Lord truly is with him, and we see that in some of the story that it envelops in the next chapter that we're not going to look at the slaying of Goliath. But here's what happens: we see that David has been appointed, chapter thirteen. David has been anointed. Chapter 16. And now God is, there is this strategic movement to bring to pass these prophecies that had been spoken of. And I suggested at least one of them was given more than likely at David's anointing, right there in front of his brothers. There's this strategic movement then from David from the sheep pen, the sheepfold, now into Saul's palace, for a lack of a better term, Saul's service. I'm sure Saul did not have a palace per se, but his estate. And I would imagine if you read earlier about Kish, his father and such, he probably comes from a rather well-to-do family. So there he is in Saul's palace. David, we learn in chapter 18, begins to build a relationship with the crown prince, Jonathan. Again, we see God moving David. He's now there. He's now building a re- in the palace. He's now building a relationship with Jonathan. And just so you know, we're going to start now reading in chapter 18. Jonathan. When, when you piece together various verses in First and Second Samuel, First um, Chronicles, you realize Jonathan is probably about 10 to 15 years older than David. Okay. But as as I read, you're going to realize Jonathan saw something that really won his heart to this young man, David. Okay. Chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, just after killing Goliath, head lopped off and whole nine yards, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing. That would be a kingly robe or a prince's, a royal, a robe of royalty, by the way. And gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul said whatever Saul sent him to do, that is David, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Okay, that's kind of stepping back and looking at out probably over the next several months, if not a couple of years. I'm going to suggest David, if he's not 20, he's not much more than 20, but he is not a teenager. So whatever you've seen in Superbook and some of these other movies and being like a 13-year-old kid when he killed Gal- no, he wasn't. He was a warrior. We read about that in chapter 16. He is called a boy. The Hebrew word Yeled is translated young man and is also the Hebrew word used for young warriors. Now, we looked at that as well. So I'm going to suggest to you, no man is going to serve in the army unless he's 20. That was the Mosaic law. But if he was, if he was young, at least 20, but I'm going to suggest probably not too much more. He's crowned king over Judah when he's 30, just so you have this kind of time frame in mind. So here he is. The crown prince bonds with him, and I would say David bonds with him as well. He is sent now on excursions, okay? So either the rest of that year or the next year because they would go out generally in spring on these campaigns to secure their borders. And so this is kind of looking ahead and kind of, yep, he was successful in whatever he did. Now he's going to back up. Verse five, we're going to go back to as soon as he had killed Goliath and chased the Philistine army. Verse five, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine... The women came out from all the towns, all the towns of Israel, to meet King Saul and singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain, I'm not going to sing this, sorry. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me? With only thousands. Sorry, I added that. What more can he get but the kingdom? Do you realize he's already going there? He's here and he's going to take my kingdom. He just killed a giant and he kind of helped lead the army to defeat Philistines. And what's he going to do? He's going to take your kingdom? Saul is a very insecure king. And it says from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day an evil spirit from God that we've already referred to in chapter 16 came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house. I'd love to dig into that but I don't have time. Saul was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul Okay, he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp. As he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. I mean, come on, church, what is Saul thinking? Something is controlling him. We know what that something is, but wow, anger, jealousy, and a spirit comes over him with rage, and he just wants to kill David, pin him to the wall with this javelin. I would imagine Saul is pretty good with the javelin. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. Verse 25, it says, very end of 25, Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy The rest of his days, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, Saul met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Do you see what God is doing here? God not only has David become best friends with Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan. He now meets with more success than any other officer. Any other officer. He eventually gets promoted to being a commander over a thousand. And Saul's heart is, I'm going to promote him because maybe on the front lines, the Philistines will kill him and I won't have to. The next chapter, though, I'm not going to read it, but Saul does it again. Spirit comes upon him. He gets so filled with jealousy and rage, he tries to pin David against the wall with his javelin again. Philistines aren't doing a very good job. I'm going to have to step in. It seems like God is trying to protect him. The Lord is with him. Well, hello, Saul. Maybe you should not try to pin him against the wall because the Philistine soldiers and commanders couldn't do it. Maybe you can't either. Maybe, maybe... God's hand is on David because there is a purpose in his life that no matter what enemy comes against David, he will not die, but fulfill every good intention on the Lord's heart. That has so much implication for you and God's church today. We'll get there in a moment. But what we see here is we see that now it says that he, Michael, Saul's daughter, younger daughter, but Saul's daughter falls in love with David. Chapter 18, they get married. I won't get into the dowry at this time. I'll let you read that in chapter 18. Interesting. But let me say this He now is not just friends, buddy, buddy, with the crown prince. Now he is King Saul's son in law. God is doing something here. Saul hates it, he is having success everywhere he goes. 1 Samuel twenty two fourteen, 14, we hear it on the lips of a priest that's, that David has actually become the captain of Saul's bodyguard. Wow, God's favor is really upon him. But Saul's anger and his jealousy, he tried, the king tries to kill. David. Saul feared David so that he would allow the Philistines to kill him if he couldn't. In verse 29, Saul became David's enemy for the rest of his life. Saul's life, not David's. David outlived Saul. His enemy. The the king's number one enemy was this guy anointed and prophesied about and told to Saul, I've appointed another man, a man after my own, God's own heart. Maybe Saul at this point has heard some of the prophecies that we looked at last week. Maybe he recognizes Saul, excuse me, David is going to take my kingdom and I've got to defend it. In essence, I cannot let the word of God be fulfilled. Okay, hang on to that thought. So David flees for his life as a fugitive. Chapter 19, I'm not going to get into that, but he flees for his life. Saul sends men to his house. He's married to the the king's daughter, and they come to the house, and they are there to kill David. Michael gets wind of this and has him flee. In his fleeing, chapter 20, he goes to eventually... 21, he goes to Achish, king of Gath, a Philistine. That's where he feigns madness. (laughs) You know, you really have to be desperate as a fugitive to feign insanity. This is, by the way, the same king that he serves a few years later, okay? I'm not going to get into that today, but here he is. This is a low, low point in his life. If you want to read a little bit more about it, I would encourage you to read Psalm 34 and 56. Psalm 34, Psalm 56 that speak about this. Well, my focus is chapter 22. I want to read those five verses there. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt were discontented, gathered around him and became their leader. About 400 men, excuse me, about 400 men were with him. Yes, verse 3. From there, David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. The stronghold, by the way, is nomenclature for the cave of Adullam. We read in 1 Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 12, that many men start coming to David, except in that chapter, it talks about the stronghold, the stronghold. I'm going to encourage you to read that chapter. God is at work. In David's lowest time of his life, God is still there. God is still kind of behind the scenes, moving the chess pieces around, if you will. I want to suggest to you something here. The cave of Abdullam is probably David's lowest point in his life. Psalm 142 is a psalm about this. And in Psalm 142, David is basically saying, I am alone. No one cares about me. And that's a quote. And he asks God, and I quote again, rescue me. And then, once you rescue me, then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And David's supposition is this, you know, once people recognize the blessing of God upon my life, and I'm not fleeing from my enemies, that's when people will gather about me. And I'm not going to dispute that that happens, but that is not what God did for David, God did not wait until his enemies were under his feet. God said, nope, David, you feel alone? I'm going to send the men to you now. I- isn't there something in our hearts sometimes, you know, maybe at work, where, we've, where we kind of feel persecuted or just people looking down on us, maybe because we're Christians, and we just say, you know what, God, if you would just bless me, then they would know the truth of Christianity, then they would know that I'm a child of God. And sometimes there's this something inside of us. Prove to the people around me that you're for me. And that's kind of what David is feeling at this point. Just pour out your blessing upon me and then everybody, maybe even including Saul, will know that you are for me. But it's at this lowest point, God says, nope, David, I'm I'm not waiting on this. I'm gonna bring the men, actually 400 men to David. And what type of men were they? I'm sure David was saying, give me me some support here, God. I'm alone. And how did God show his support? He sent 400 men. Are you ready for this? Here is how they are described. In distress. Now, I don't know about you. When you're in distress, being a good follower is really hard. You tend to complain. You tend to see the faults. When you're in distress, it's like, you're my answer. So they're going to David, in essence, saying, you better be my answer. And what's David's, suppo- but I'm a fugitive. What can I do? So great. That's the type of people that came to him. Those who were looking for David to be the answer. And at that time, he's thinking, there's no way I can. Thanks so much, Lord, for bringing all those people in distress. He also brought them people who were in debt. What, do, do I, am I the Federal Reserve? Am I going Are there handouts? Do you see anything? What kind of gold do I have? Nothing. You're in debt. What do you expect from me? Now, I'm just kind of supposing here a bit. But those aren't the type of people that you want to be, your followers, if you're an up-and-coming king. Not those who are in distress. Not those who are in debt. And definitely not those who are discontent. Because they come generally with an attitude. But here's something that you may not know. I'm going to encourage you to read on in Samuel, but also Second Samuel, but also in First Chronicles 12, 13. It tells us that of those 400, David eventually fast forward several years. He's now anointed king at age 30 and age 37, king over all Israel. But if you go back, who are David's 30 mighty men? Those 400 those ragamuffins, if you will, those guys who were in distress, in debt, and discontent, God raised up 30 of them to become David's 30 mighty men. And then there were the three, the three mighty men from there as well. You see, sometimes when we go through life's difficulties, knowing I'm a child of God and I know there's a purpose in my life, I was married to my wife I know that we had a pr- we talked about ministry raising children yes we were excited and then that first year was like what did I marry the wrong person? David is probably thinking, "God, where are you?" I'm in the cave of Adullam. I am fleeing for my life. I had to play insane. Did you see that? I did a great job, didn't I? But I hated it. You know, and, and you're just thinking, "God, are you, did you just abandon me? And am I do I have to try and make this prop these prophecies come to pass? Do I have to work my way to somehow become king? Because I have no idea. I am all by myself, fleeing for my life. And where are you now in my life today? God says, I'm going to send you some 400 men. And David, when he receives them, probably did one of these. Boy, really, God, that's your answer? Thank you, but no thank you. They can only imagine these types of people coming to him. And for David, the struggle, but at least he's got men, right? But if that was David's initial attitude, I think God helped him change that. Because while he's in the cave we don't know how how long he was in the cave but three of those mighty men actually from there loved david and were so loyal to david that they went david said i'm thirsty sorry right. you know we can go to the brook down here you know what they did david said man i just i miss bethlehem's water i don't know what was special about bethlehem's water Okay, But it was special. So this three mighty men, or men who would eventually become his three mighty men, went to Bethlehem, busted through the garrison, the Philistine garrison there, to get a cup of cold water. I'm sure on the way back they spilled half of it, but they gave it to David. And he took it and he said, you risked your life for this. And David, it says, Scripture says he couldn't drink it. He poured it out like an offering. To the Lord, I'm not sure how the three guys took that, (laughs) but you—you just—we risked our lives for it. Was an offering. I I can't drink this. This is like sacred. This—this is like your life blood. And he realized how loyal these three were, and eventually he realizes how loyal and how good the four hundred were for him as he led them on certain campaigns against the enemies of Israel, Amalekites and the like, while he's running from place to place in Judah, fleeing for his life. You see what, church, it's so easy for us to look at life and begin to question God's heart. We can look at our marriage and just say, God, is this a joke? What, What are you doing? I don't get this. And I want to, you know, I, I struggled. My wife did too. Who is this man that I married? He just doesn't seem like the, the guy that I knew before. And but now that we're living together, we begin to realize all of the stuff that we brought into our marriage. And not all of it was good. But God had made us one. God had a purpose. We questioned that. I'm sure just like David did in the cave of Adullam. But we said, you know what? Till death do us part. Okay. We are in this for the long haul. And God needed to show me some things. I want you to turn just very briefly to Psalm 78. We're gonna see something in David's life and then we're gonna bring it home, okay? And in Psalm 78, verse 70, long Psalm, by the way, it says, he referring to the Lord, Yahweh, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep, he brought him to be shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. Now listen to this, verse 72, and David shepherded them with, Integrity of heart and skillful hands. And with skillful hands, he led them. Those two things, David led from his heart. Integrity of heart. He was a man of character. I can guarantee you that when God had Samuel anoint David, he was not the man he needed to be to become king. But God knew what he was going to do in David's life to prepare him so that he would be a man after his own heart. He was, of course, to a degree, yes, but with integrity of heart. I tell you what, when you become leader and you step into a role of authority, that changes things. The decisions that you now need to make that you've never made before, the testing, the fire you go through, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, is the expression, but I tell you what, when you step into a leadership position, you are put into that crucible, and you are tested, hopefully refined, and David was. I'm just gonna encourage you to do this, maybe as we're going through the life of David in the next couple of weeks. Go through some of these chapters. Excuse me, begin to ask this question. Why did God allow this, this, this? And You may not be able to get an answer, but try and look for it. How could God, how might have God built integrity of heart into David. The second thing is that he also led with skillful hands. I'm going to just tell you right now that God is in this process of what you're going through. He is imparting character, but he is also imparting skill. Usually, when we go through hard times... Most Christians, and this is unfortunate, we ask this question generally because we do not fully grasp or apprehend the grace of God. Our first question is, God, why are you punishing me, right? Usually, that's the question that we ask. That's the question that Job's friends ask Job. And even though there's an entire book devoted to this, the church today generally still doesn't get it. Now, don't get me wrong. God does bring discipline. Punishment is both corrective or punitive. There is no reason for punitive punishment for any Christian. Jesus took that wrath, that punishment upon himself. The only type of punishment or discipline, if you will, is corrective. It's fair enough to ask, God, are are you disciplining me? Are you trying to correct something? Can I just share this with you? If you're struggling with this today, God, this bad thing or these bad things that are happening, are you trying to discipline me? when I would discipline my children, take them into the the bathroom, there was a process that I went through. I never took them in there, bend over my knees, spank, 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 spank. Okay, you're done. I would never do it that way. I always wanted to extend love. There was a purpose that I needed to explain to them every single time. And I would ask them, why is daddy spanking you right now? I needed to hear from them what they understood. And if they didn't understand it, I explained it to them. I needed them to know why they were being disciplined. And once they were, we were done, I would almost always, I would pray with them and I would say, okay, and how much does daddy love you? And my kids would say this much around the world a million times. And I'd correct them, nope, a million and one. Okay, okay, and from here around the world to, you got it. And so I I wanted them to just understand, Daddy really loves you. I don't like doing this, but it's for your good. I always explain the purpose. Can I just share with you? If you're going through something and you think it's of a disciplinary nature, God is going to show you. That That is the heart of a father. He's going to show you what it is for. Don't don't look for skeletons in closets. In other words, don't try and, I mean, honestly, we always do wrong things. We sin, a thought, an action, a word, blew it again. And, And we feel like God has this proverbial hammer that he's constantly bringing down. And I need you to understand the grace of God and his unfailing love for you. Much of what we go through is not just to simply bring correction. Discipline. When I was a young man, there were certain things that God disciplined me. There were certain things that my coach would discipline me. There were certain things that I did to discipline myself. You know where I'm going with this. Because discipline, many times, is not just have to do with character, but it has to do with building something in me. I was an athlete, so I had to train. That, was, that took discipline. Character of heart or integrity of heart and skillful hands. If we're going to use the word discipline, it's not just, pu- it's not just uh, corrective, but God is wanting to build something in your heart. What, would, what might he be building in your heart today? Can I just show you an absolutely beautiful passage in Scripture that speaks to this? Peter, the entire book of 1 Peter, is written to those who are going through hardships and persecutions. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, you can turn there if you want, you don't need to, but chapter 4 verse 13, in view of all of this junk that you're going through, call of God on your life, but you're going through junk, junk. You're in the cave of Adon. This is what he says, but, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that, here's the reason, listen now, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Romans puts it this way, Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the Greek is very clear. It's not just revealed to us, it's revealed in us. Do you realize? that David was in this process in the cave of Adullam, and it it went on for several more years. God was in this process of building something of such glorious magnitude that it revealed God, the character of Christ in him, the skill that was being refined, that God values, by the way. God was doing something in him. And the Bible says this, He says that when we stand before God at the end of the age, that's when this glory in us will be revealed. And we will step back. We may be in tears. God, is that really what you did? Is that really what you built in my life? I just had no idea. And many times you won't see it because it just takes so long, church. It does. Just to be honest and human right now, it takes so long for us to get it. But when we stand before him, church, we will get it. We will see the glory of God in us. Second Corinthians says that we are being transformed by the Spirit of God from glory to glory in us. God is working a glory in you that you cannot see, but one day you will be overjoyed David wasn't real overjoyed in the cave of Adelan, but I tell you what, now that he stands before God, he is overjoyed for the glory that God has revealed in him in all of this process, a decade about of hardship after hardship. And today you may find yourself in that cave. God, I am all alone. Nobody will side with me. I'm a refuge. If they side with me, then they will be on the king's hit list as well. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. Isn't there a song from Donkey and Shrek about I'm all alone? Yeah, anyway. And God, poor me. And yet God says, mm. oh, David, I'm going to reveal such, so much of my glory in you in this process. So that when you stand before me one day, I'm going to say, David, look at all of this. Look at this glory that I have produced in you. Look at these men that you, by allowing the Spirit to work through you, and it took so much for me to refine you to do this, but look at all the people you impacted. You had such a kingdom mindset, and it wasn't just your kingdom. It had to do with the kingdom of God. So David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands, he led them. Church, Right now, you may be asking, God, do you really always lead us in triumphal procession? Because that's what scripture says. This marriage, that first year of life, it was like, God, this doesn't feel like triumphal procession in my opinion. But can I say, there was just so much more that God needed to do in me. It had to do with character. It had to do deal with now standing on my own, leading my home so that one day I would lead a church or you know, lead kids, not just a wife. I needed to get things squared away financially and just think responsibly, at least more responsibly. There were skills that God needed to give me that I had to work at, but there was a heart. I needed to understand. I was married to a woman who was so very different than myself. And because of that, I've been able to grow so much more than if I were to be married to someone more like myself. Thank you for being so different than me, sweetie. (laughs) Amen. Today. Instead of asking the question, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Maybe today we can ask this question. Okay, God, what are you doing? And it may not be God trying to correct us, but simply God trying to build something of eternal quality so that when that day comes, you will be so overjoyed, though you can't see it now, then you will, and you will be overjoyed of the glory of Christ manifested in your life. That is our hope, church. That is triumphal procession. Regardless of of what we're going through. There is a promise, there is a prophetic word upon you and upon Jesus' church that is inevitably coming to pass. The devil cannot stop it. It is inevitable. Can you embrace that today? Even in the midst of your cave of Adullam, embrace that. God is so good, church. He truly is. Can you stand with me? If you feel like the Lord is wanting to minister to you, I'm just going to open the altar up. And and as you would, if you want to pray here or at your seat, if you're up here, we'll be able to pray for you. I, I can't promise that if you're at your seat unless you come and ask us. But let's meet with God right now. Let's kind of sort through this. Does God have your ear? I prayed in the beginning that we would have ears to hear. Common phrase in scripture. I know I need that. Can we hear what he's speaking to us right now? Can we respond? Let's pray. Father, I I just ask you, Lord. I don't know all the emotions and all the questions that David had. I can kind of guess, but it was hard. But he knew this, that you were with him. He was rock solid on that. Maybe at times his feet wavered. For some of us today, that's where we're at. And what we're going through personally or what our family is going through or what our church right now is going through. What Jesus' church worldwide is going through. But Lord, this we know. You are good. Your love is unfailing. Help us to grasp this today, God. You have not abandoned us. Bring your good pleasure to pass in my life. And I just thank you right now. It is good. It is good. Comfort our hearts with this, God. Reveal this glory in us, whether we see it or not. And I'm just asking you, Lord, bring your word to pass. Do it swiftly. Do good things. Help us as a mom or as a dad, as a business owner, an employee, to shine Jesus and make your kingdom known. That's your heart. Mm. Work so deeply in us, God. We just surrender it to you. All of this stuff, we surrender it to you. Thank you, Father. You love us. You've not left us alone. You have given us a hope and a future. The devil cannot stop that. Your set purposes, he cannot overcome. Bring them to pass in my heart and keep me humble. Keep me focused and completely reliant upon you. Always, God. And if ever I stray from that, bring me back to that place where I am completely dependent upon you. You did this for David. Do it for me. Do it for us, God, please. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.